Turn with me in your Bible to the book of Nehemiah in the Old Testament. The book of Nehemiah, that's where we will be for the next several weeks together. I know my tendency when it seems that something is not as it could be, should be, or must be, especially when it relates to God's people, to the ministry here at Redeemer, and especially when I think God is calling me to be a part of the solution, my tendency is to jump right into action, to see something that I think is a need, see something that I think needs to be improved, especially when it becomes a burden to me, my tendency is to jump right in. And maybe you're the same way. Maybe you see something. Maybe you hear something. Maybe it's something that it's not what it could be. It's not what it should be. It's not what it must be. And more than that, it becomes a burden to you and you begin to feel that God wants you to be a part of the solution. Maybe he's burdened you about something here at Redeemer, maybe something in our city, maybe in your family, maybe it's even something around the world. And it really becomes a burden, it becomes a load, it becomes a weight, something upon your soul and in your heart and mind that just will not let you go. And there's the growing sense that God wants you to be a part of changing it. And you're thrilled about that. Because you want to serve Christ. And you want to serve his people. Years ago I heard it said like this, the inclination in the heart of God's people is not simply to sit, soak, and sour. Right? But to serve. To know that God has not only saved me through his son Jesus Christ, but he has indwelt me with his Holy Spirit and with the Spirit has given me a gift with which I am to serve in the great cause of Christ. And so it is exciting. But maybe if you're like me, when you see that thing and when you're burdened about that thing, your tendency is to jump right in. And I think our text this morning and the story of Nehemiah is going to remind us to not do that, but in fact to do something else first. So hopefully you've found Nehemiah. As you have found Nehemiah, I want you to keep your finger there and then turn to the very beginning of your Bible and look at the table of contents. All right? Go to the very beginning of your Bible, the table of contents where it says Old Testament, and then it lists all 39 books of the Old Testament. There are 39 books in the Old Testament. The first 17 of them are what we call the historical books because the first 17 cover the major storyline of the Old Testament. From Genesis 1-1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, all the way until Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther. You see down there, of the first 17 books, Nehemiah is number 16. It takes us up until approximately 400 B.C. And if you take good notes in your mind, you see that the 17th book is Esther, but in fact her story 
fits into the very middle of the book of Ezra chronologically. So all of that to say, Nehemiah comes at the very end of the story of the Old Testament. It's about 400 years before a voice crying in the wilderness. John the Baptist comes on the scene, preparing the way for Jesus, the Messiah. And what Nehemiah is essentially about, if you know the story, um, the nation of Israel had, God had redeemed them out of Egypt by his strong arm. They had crossed the Red Sea and come to Mount Sinai, where God made a covenant with them that he would be their God and they would be his people. And God gave them his law and God gave them the tabernacle, this tent-like structure in which he would dwell among his people as they made their way through the wilderness and into the promised land. They left Mount Sinai and headed towards the promised land, but then they fell into unbelief because they got scared of the fortified cities and the big, strong people that were living in the land of promise. And so they said, God has brought us into the wilderness to die. Joshua and Caleb said, no, he hasn't. He's promised us this land. We can take it. But the people believed that report of unbelief and because of it, God had them wander in the wilderness for 40 years. The old generation died, the new generation arose, and eventually under Joshua, they crossed the Jordan River into the land of promise and took the land. It then led to a period of the judges, where God's people would turn not in faith and trust and obedience to God, but rather they would turn to evil. And as a result, the Moabites or the Ammonites or the Gibeonites or whoever it might be, one of their enemies would come in, give them a hard time for many, many years. And God would raise up a judge, a political military leader who would bring salvation, if you will, to the people, would defeat their enemies and bring peace for a time. But then that judge would die and they would repeat the cycle over and over and over again. So eventually they said, we want a king. And eventually God gave them King David. And then after David was King Solomon. And then after Solomon's reign, it, it split into the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. And in the north, they never really followed the Lord. They turned to idolatry time and time and time again. And despite the warnings through the prophets, they were taken away into exile by the Assyrians. The southern kingdom of Judah held on for a little bit longer. They too had turned to idolatry and sin, but God would raise up godly kings to bring them to repentance, and so they hung on for a while longer. But eventually their disobedience caught up with them, and the Babylonians destroyed the southern kingdom of Judah and took them into captivity in Babylon. But God had made a promise to the southern kingdom that though they would be taken into exile, he would eventually, after 70 years, bring them back. And the books of Ezra and Nehemiah are the story of God fulfilling his promise to bring his people back from Babylonian exile into the land. In the book of Ezra, we, we read of a fellow named Zerubbabel. 
and about 50,000 Jews that, that came from Babylon back into the land and rebuilt the temple in Jerusalem. And in the latter part of the book of Ezra, we read about Ezra and about 2,000 Jews who came back with him to rebuild the people, if you will. Ezra was, was a scribe who knew and loved and practiced and taught the word of God to the people, and God used him to bring them to a place of repentance and obedience. And then Nehemiah is going to come a little bit later to rebuild the walls and again reform the people. Zerubbabel rebuilds the temple. Ezra rebuilds the people. Nehemiah comes and rebuilds the walls as well as seeking to reform the people as well. We'll find out towards the end of the book, Israel still needs a savior. The book ends in chapter 13 with Nehemiah pulling out the hair of the men of Israel because of their disobedience. But here we are. In Nehemiah chapter 1, let's see how his story begins. I think the first point of my sermon will simply be this. When things are not as they could be or should be or must be for God's people, this can create a burden in your heart or mine. Let's watch it. The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah. Now, it happened in the month Chislev. That's... November, December, in the 20th year, that's 445 BC, while I was in Susa, the capital. So this is, this is east in the land of Persia. And this was the winter home of the Persian kings where Nehemiah found himself. I was in Susa, the capital, that Hanani, one of my brothers, and some men from Judah came so Nehemiah is in Susa, the capital, and here comes Hanani, his brother, and some others, all the way from the land of promise, from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped and survived the captivity and about Jerusalem. So Nehemiah asked them, hey, how's it going? Some 100 years prior, is when God had stirred up the heart of King Cyrus of Persia to allow the Jews to return. 50,000 with Zerubbabel and 2,000 with Ezra had returned. And Nehemiah is asking, how's it going? They said to me, the remnant there in the province who survived the captivity are in great distress and reproach. And the wall of Jerusalem is broken down and his gates are burned with fire. Now, I think Nehemiah hears that, and in so many words, he thinks that's not the way it could be, or it should be, or it must be. I want to give you one bit of flavor. Keep your finger there and turn to your left to 1 Kings chapter, not 1 Kings, 2 Kings chapter 4. No, it is 1 Kings, sorry. 1 Kings chapter 4. The early part of 1 Kings is about Solomon's reign. 
Saul was the first king of Israel, and it didn't go so well with Saul. And then David, the man after God's own heart, and then Solomon. And under Solomon's reign, it was, you might say, the golden years of Israel's history. Now, his reign did not end so well. But look how the author of 1 Kings 4 describes the reign of Solomon, starting chapter 4, verse 20. Judah and Israel were as numerous as the sea, sand that is on the seashore in abundance. They were eating and drinking and rejoicing. He, he talks about the people here. God had made a promise to Abraham early on that his descendants would be like the sand of the seashore. And here the author is saying that's exactly what God is doing. The people were as numerous as sand that is on the seashore in abundance. They were eating and drinking and rejoicing. They were happy and at peace. Now Solomon ruled over all the kingdoms, from the river to the land of the Philistines to the border of Egypt. They brought tribute and served Solomon all the days of his life. Solomon's provision for one day was 30 cores of fine flour, 60 cores of meal, 10 fat oxen, 20 pasture-fed oxen, 100 sheep beside deer, gazelles, roebucks, and fattened fowl. For he had dominion over everything west of the river, from Tipshah even to Gaza, over all the kings west of the river. And he had peace on all sides round about him. So the author reminds us of the people, numerous as the sand on the seashore, and the, the place where God had brought his people there in Jerusalem and through King Solomon was reigning over all the land and the peace on all sides around about him. Verse 25, so Judah and Israel lived in safety, every man under his vine and his fig tree, from Dan even to Beersheba, all the days of Solomon. Back to Nehemiah, in some ways we might say, that's the way it should have been. And yet when Nehemiah hears, tell me, tell me how it's going back in the land. Tell me how the people are doing. The remnant in the province who survived the captivity are in great distress and reproach, and the wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are burned with fire. That's not the way it could be or should be or must be. And he got burdened for it. Verse 4, when I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Things must be different. This will be the story of the rebuilding of the walls. But the rebuilding of the walls are for the glory of God and the good of God's people. He's not just concerned with broken down walls. He's concerned with the people. And he wants what's best for them. And so he's going to rebuild the walls. But the latter half of the book is he's going to seek to reform the people as well leading them to the confession of their sins and leading them to trust God and obey God. Sadly, they will not always do that. So again, maybe God has put a burden in your heart. Again, maybe it's something here at Redeemer. Maybe it's something in our city, a need in our city where you go, that's just 
Things could be so different there. Things must be different there. And you begin to feel it. The burden in your soul that things could change and that God maybe wants to use you to be the one to change it. I read verse 4 and I think about Jesus. You remember in Matthew 9 when it says of him that when he saw the people, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and downcast like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus felt compassion for God's people. Nehemiah felt compassion for God's people. Maybe God has put a burden on your heart, compassion for God's people. It's becoming a burden in your soul. Secondly, rather than jump into action, Nehemiah jumps into prayer. And boy, that's the lesson that God's having to teach me over and over and over again, because my tendency is, pray later. Or sadly, wake up and go, have I even prayed about this at all? Nehemiah is going to begin with prayer. He is a man of action. There's no question about that. All you got to do is read Nehemiah. He's legendary for his leadership skills, his administrative skills. We'll see his planning in chapter 2, his vision casting in chapter 2. We'll see how he positions the people in chapter 3. We'll see how he confronts um, not only their enemies, but even divisions within the people of God, how he fixes problems and how he perseveres through opposition. This is a man of action par excellence. He's not one for just simply sitting back and waiting for things to happen. But he does begin with prayer. When I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, fasting and praying before the God of heaven. We'll come back to this, but I just want to note it to you here as well. I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And in verse 6, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant, which I am praying before you now, day and night. And then in chapter 2, verse 1, it came about in the month Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes. This is going to be when God begins to answer his prayer. And we note the month Nisan is four months later. Nehemiah has been praying for four months, every day, day and night. Andy Stanley has a great little leadership book built off of the book of Nehemiah, and he, he, he lists at least three reasons why God almost always has us wait between the initial burden that we feel and being able to execute on the burden. He says, number one, the reason God has us wait often is so that the vision will mature in us. 
that over that period of waiting, we come to see whether or not this is just a passing burden within our soul or if it's something that really, really grips us. The vision matures in us. Now, the reason God has us wait so often is so that we mature in preparation for the vision. That we see something that's not as it could be, should be, or must be, and we get a burden that, well, God wants me to do something about that, but he makes us wait. Why? Well, one of the reasons is he's still maturing us in preparation for what he's going to have us do and then third, that God is at work behind the scenes preparing the way. And we'll see that as we get into chapter two. Nehemiah is going to say, this happened because the Lord's hand was upon me. So I think this is just a good reminder for you and for me that if you've got a burden, begin with prayer. John Bunyan most famous for writing The Pilgrim's Progress, said this. I quoted it a few weeks ago, and, and I, I quickly quoted it, and it's hard to keep up with, so I'll slow down this time. You can do more than pray after you have prayed, but you cannot do more than pray until you have prayed. You can do more than pray after you've prayed, and we'll certainly see that modeled by Nehemiah. God is going to use him wonderfully and mightily in the rebuilding of the walls and the reformation of the people. You can do more than pray after you've prayed, but you cannot do more than pray until you've prayed. So if you and I head on out without a sense of prayer and dependence upon God? Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. And then third, our prayers would do very well, I think, to model after Nehemiah's prayer. So let's just note a handful of things as we walk through Nehemiah's prayer. The first is that he persisted in prayer, and we already looked at that. He, he wept and mourned for days. He prayed day and night. And we find out in chapter two, he did so for four months. In the, in the email I sent out this week, I quoted Charles Haddon Spurgeon. Prayer pulls the rope below and the great bell rings above in the ears of God. Some scarcely stir the bell for they pray so languidly. Others give but an occasional pluck at the rope. But he who wins with heaven is the man who grasps the rope boldly and pulls continuously with all his might. You get the impression that's the kind of prayer that Nehemiah had here for four months. Day and night, persistently, praying about this burden that God had put upon his heart. Secondly, and just in passing, he coupled his praying with fasting. And I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. 
We'll talk more about fasting as March approaches. Because in March, you'll remember, we're going to be a part of Awaken West Houston, where, by God's grace, thousands of believers across Katy, across West Houston, will join together and pray and fast for tens of thousands of households by name in our city. A brief definition of fasting is to refrain from food for a spiritual purpose. We find it all throughout the Bible, and we find it often even in the New Testament. And in so many of our traditions, the discipline of fasting is something we just kind of pass over rather than see it as a spiritual practice for God's people even today. Third, just like we reminded ourselves in our series in December, he began with adoration or praise. I said, I beseech you, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who preserves the covenant and loving kindness for those who love him and keep his commandments. And we won't preach it again, but remember, we reminded ourselves to begin with adoration. Something, though, that in particular here, that I wanted to touch on back in December, but really didn't get a chance to. It seems that Nehemiah is praising God, not just for things in general, which is wonderful enough, but he's, he's praising God for God's attributes that are going to hopefully come into play in the answer to prayer that he wants. Some of you may be familiar with the old Book of Common Prayer. And within the Anglican tradition, something called a prayer collect. It's a simple form of prayer that teaches you to do a handful of things, but the first is, as you address God, you then point out to him, if you will, or remind yourself about some particular attribute of him that pertains to the need you're about to ask. So it's not merely that we praise God for his goodness or for his grace or for his kindness or his wisdom in a general way. But here he's praying to the Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who preserves the covenant and loving kindness for those who love him and keep his commandments. He's about to ask God to remember the covenant which he had made with his people. A simple illustration of this may be something like, Lord Jesus, you who gave sight to the blind, who gave hearing to the deaf, who caused the lame to walk and even leap again, would you heal Mitch of his cancer? See that? 
It's attributes of Christ, his healing power that are then tied to the request that's coming. But he praises God. He adores God. And for kicks, he's picking up here on Daniel 9. This is where the Bible can get tricky. Daniel is to your right, but in fact, Daniel came earlier than Nehemiah in the story. But just listen to this from Daniel chapter 9. Daniel was one of the, the captives that was taken away into Babylon. And he had been in Babylon for nearly 70 years. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, of Median descent, who was made king over the kingdom of the Chaldeans or Babylonians. So this is in 538 B.C. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, observed in the books the number of years which was revealed as the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet for the completion of the desolation of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. So Daniel's reading his Bible, and Daniel sees that God made a promise that they would be in exile for 70 years, and then God would allow them to return. And it's about 67, 68 years later, and so this is getting close. So I gave my attention to the Lord God to seek him by prayer and supplications, with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed and said, Alas, O Lord, the great and awesome God. Same words Nehemiah used. Nehemiah had probably been reading Daniel. The great and awesome God who keeps his covenant and loving kindness for those who love him and keep his commandments. And so he persisted in prayer. He coupled his prayer with fasting. He began with praise and adoration of God and in particular those attributes of God that were going to come to play in the thing that he's going to ask. Number four, he seemingly begged God. In verse six, let your ear now be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant which I am praying before you day and night. I don't know if he has Exodus 2 in mind here where Israel was in, in slavery and bondage in Egypt and they were crying out to God and God heard them and saw them. But he's saying, God, hear me, see me, don't miss me. One commentator said, one of the utterly astounding characteristics of biblical psalms is that the psalmist never doubted that God heard his prayer. How great is God that he can pay attention to each of our prayers, millions of them around the world, individually and simultaneously. Our minds cannot comprehend it, but God is beyond our comprehension. Number five, his prayer consists of confession. And remember, we talked about this too, adoration, confession. 
confessing the sins of the sons of Israel, which we have sinned against you. I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments nor the statutes nor the ordinances which you commanded your servant, Moses. Nehemiah knows this because Nehemiah knows the history of his people. But he probably also knows it because the report is that the people are in great distress and reproach and the walls of Jerusalem are broken down and its gates are burned with fire. The only reason this could be is because God's people are living in disobedience to him. God's word to the nation of Israel was that if you will obey me, I will bless you. But if you disobey me, it will not go well for you. So I think when he hears the report that the remnant is back as they have been for some 100 years, but they are not experiencing the peace and the blessing of God. He knows that it must be the sins of God's people. I'll go back to Daniel 9. Daniel goes even further. And again, I think Nehemiah had Daniel's prayer in mind. Alas, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant and loving kindness for those who love him and keep his commandments. We have sinned, committed iniquity, acted wickedly and rebelled even turning aside from your commandments and ordinances. Moreover, we have not listened to your servants, the prophets who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, our fathers, and all the people of the land. Righteousness belongs to you, O Lord, but to us open shame as it is to this day. To the men of Judah, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and all Israel, those who are nearby and those who are far away, and all the countries to which you have driven them because of their unfaithful deeds which they have committed against you. Open shame belongs to us, O Lord, to our kings, our princes, our fathers, because we have sinned against you. To the Lord our God belong compassion and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against him. Nor have we obeyed the voice of the Lord our God to walk in his teachings, which he set before us through his servants, the prophets. Indeed, all Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, not obeying your voice. So the curse has been poured out on us along with the oath which is written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, for we have sinned against him. Thus he has confirmed his words which he had spoken against us and against our rulers who ruled us to bring on us great calamity. For under the whole heaven there has not been done anything like that which was done to Jerusalem. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come on us. Yet we have not sought the favor of the Lord our God by turning from our iniquity and giving attention to your truth. Therefore, the Lord has kept the calamity in store and brought it on us. For the Lord our God is righteous with respect to all his deeds, which he has done, but we have not obeyed his voice. Confession. Some of the, if you will, the model prayers of the Old Testament, Daniel 9, Nehemiah 1, Ezra 9 are, are filled with confession before God 
of sins. Number six, he argued with God from Scripture. Verse eight, remember he's still talking to God here. Remember the word which you commanded your servant Moses saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though those of you who have been scattered were in the remotest part of the heavens, I will gather them from there and will bring them to the place where I've chosen to cause my name to dwell. God, remember you said that if, if we're disobedient, you'll, you'll rip us out of the land. But if, if we return to you, you'll bring us back and we will dwell the place where you have chosen to cause your name to dwell. God, remember your word. I think Nehemiah probably interpreted their distress and their reproach as short of God's full promise to bring them to this place. The expectation was maybe that God would bring them back to the land and they would have their place and they would have their peace and they would cast off the foreign rule and the Messiah would reign. But of course, the remnant had returned. The temple had been rebuilt, but not to its former glory. Ezra had sought to reform the people, but there was still great sin among them. They had not cast off the burden of the Persian Empire. They were still, they'll call themselves, I think it's in chapter 9, still slaves. They weren't experiencing all of the expectation of the return to Jerusalem and the rule of the king. But Nehemiah is leaning into God's word here. And finally, he, he gets specific for his desire. Verse 10, they are your servants and your people who you redeemed by your great power and your strong hand. Looking back to the exodus from Egypt. Oh Lord, I beseech you, may your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and the prayer of your servants who delight to revere your name. And maybe I should have made a point out of this, but I'm just now seeing it. I saw it, but I didn't think about it this week. Maybe he got his friends praying for him too. Hey guys, I got a real burden for what, for what God is putting upon my heart. Here's what I think he's wanting me to do. Would y'all pray with me about that? May your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and the prayer of your servants who delight to revere your name and make your servant successful today and grant him compassion before this man. Now, I was the cupbearer to the king. Four months of prayer had come to the point where Nehemiah believed today was the day. And we'll see it next week. He's going to be before King Artaxerxes, the Persian king. He's the cupbearer to the king. And he's going to get a chance to tell the king what's on his heart and see what will happen. Here's what's crazy about that. King Artaxerxes of Persia 
had not many years before issued a decree to stop rebuilding Jerusalem. Okay, you got to go with me here. The Babylonians had destroyed Judah, hit them three times in 605, 597, 586 was the biggie when they destroyed the temple. And then many, many years later, the Persians came to power and King Cyrus of Persia allowed the people to return to rebuild their temple in the city. And so Zerubbabel went back with 50,000 and they rebuilt the temple. And then Ezra came back and began to rebuild the people. And then apparently sometime in there, efforts were being made to rebuild the rest of the city, to get the walls back up. And you don't have to turn there, but in Ezra chapter 4, some guys wrote a letter to King Artaxerxes. They did not like the fact that these Jews were rebuilding their city. Let it be known to the king that the Jews who came up from here have come to us at Jerusalem. They are rebuilding the rebellious and evil city and are finishing the walls and repairing its foundations. Let it be known to the king that if that city is rebuilt and the walls are finished, they will not pay tribute, custom, or toll. It will damage the revenue of the king's. These guys are trying to rebuild their city and it won't go well for you, King Artaxerxes. Then the king sent an answer. Peace. And now the document which you sent to us has been translated and read before me. A decree has been issued by me and a search has been made and it has been discovered that the city has risen up against the kings in past days that rebellion and revolt have been perpetuated in it that mighty kings have ruled over Jerusalem, governing all the provinces beyond the river, and that tribute, custom, and toll were paid to them. So now issue a decree to make these men stop work, that this city may not be rebuilt until the decree is issued by me. Beware of being negligent in carrying out this manner. Why should damage increase to the detriment of the kings? Then as soon as the copy of King Artaxerxes' document was read before Rehum and Shushai, the scribe, and their colleagues, they went in haste to Jerusalem to the Jews and stopped them by force of arms. Nehemiah is about to go in and ask King Artaxerxes to reverse the decree which just a handful of years earlier he had put in place. Maybe that's why at the very beginning of his prayer, I beseech you, O Lord God of heaven, you reign over all things. And maybe, one guy pointed out, maybe that's why he, he, he calls King Artaxerxes this man. Make your servant successful today and grant him compassion before this man. Artaxerxes is but a little man, and God is the great Lord of heaven. So brothers and sisters, maybe God puts a burden on your heart because of compassion that you have for the people of God, a need that comes up, 
and you're just thinking, things could be, should be, must be different here. And God begins to burden you for it. Start with prayer. Start with prayer. I would invite you to pray with us this month. I think I left my prayer guide. Oh, there it is. Grab one of these if you don't already. We started yesterday. Please use it to pray every day this month for Redeemer Community Church. Secondly, if you will, please join us tonight from five to six o'clock. I'm gonna call her out, but I saw Mary Lerman this morning and we were visiting and I said, you know, I have no idea if five people are gonna show up, 50 people are gonna show up. She looked at me and she says, I hope everybody shows up. And I said, me too. Come tonight if you can and pray with us. He said, Mitch, I don't pray in front of other people. You don't have to. You do not have to pray out loud. We'll probably break up into some small groups and things like that, but even in your small group, you don't have to pray out loud. While somebody else is praying, you can just agree with them silently, and you can be praying silently yourself. And we're gonna just pray to God and ask for his blessing upon Redeemer that he would lead us and help us and guide us and power us, inspire us, and move among us. So come tonight. We'll have care for your little ones, K through third grade. They're gonna have class back there and they're gonna learn about prayer and even practice prayer. Fourth and fifth graders will be with us in here. We'll see how that goes. If it didn't go really well, maybe we'll send them back next week. But hopefully our little fourth and fifth graders can be with us and can join us in prayer Junior high and senior high students, hope you guys will come back and y'all can get together in your own groups and you can pray. You can pray. And as the Lord burdens your heart, begin with prayer. Let's, let's pray. Father, thank you that you hear us when we pray. You've inclined your ear to your children. And it's not because we are great. It's because you are great. And because of your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, we have been brought into relationship with you. We are your children and like a father quickly turns to the voice of his child, so too does our great heavenly father. Thank you that you hear us. And God, I do pray that you would burden each and every one of us with something wonderful this year. Maybe a burden for something here at Redeemer or in our city or around the world or in your family or maybe in your workplace. A burden to, to love someone for Jesus' sake. To love a group of people for Jesus' sake. To, to start a new venture, to begin a new ministry. To help one that already exists but you would give each of us a, a holy burden for places that you would like us to, to serve 
to be a blessing to others. And Lord, teach us that apart from you, we can do nothing. We need you. What would have happened had Nehemiah just simply rushed into the presence of King Artaxerxes? We don't know, but we do know what happened as a result of his prayers. We'll see that next week in chapter two. So Lord, make us a people of prayer who recognize our great need for the power of God, who recognize that in ourselves we can do nothing of eternal significance. But with your help, the sky's the limit. So teach us to pray. In Jesus' name, amen.